This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, we discuss how maritime transport may be decarbonized, reducing the shipping industry's dependence on fossil fuels. In 2019, around 65 million metric tons of iron ore were exported from Australia to Japanese steelmakers by ship, according to a recent publication by the Getting to Zero Coalition in collaboration with others. These voyages, using many ships, led to over 1.5 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. Now, using less than 40% of the number of ships used with zero emission fuels, it would be possible to decarbonize all iron ore trade between Australia and Japan. This sounds good, but there's a catch. Analyses show that by 2030, such a scenario with vessels running on green ammonia, which is a zero emission fuel, though possible, would still cost a lot more. Most of the difference is due to the higher cost of the fuels themselves. Yet even with the higher cost of zero carbon fuels, pilots are underway, just to see how possible such a scenario might be. And according to the International Renewable Energy Agency, a Japanese container transportation and shipping company has just done a successful trial using biofuel to power a vessel. The biofuel used is essentially free from sulfur oxides and can reduce life cycle carbon dioxide emissions by up to 90% in comparison to conventional fossil fuels. So how can shipping make the transition to zero carbon fuels on a large scale? Let's find out how. Good morning and welcome. I'm Rumina Slam, host of Tell Me How. My guest today is Dominique Englert, one of our experts on maritime transport. Dominique will be speaking today about decarbonizing shipping. Welcome, Dominique. Hello, Rumin. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. Dominique, let me start with asking you why it's important to decarbonize shipping. For example, how important are current emissions from the shipping sector? 70% of all goods in your office by value and 80% of all the goods by volume that we use on a daily basis are carried by ships. Yet at the same time, The shipping sector is a significant and unfortunately growing contributor to global climate change, producing around 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. If shipping was a country, it would be the sixth largest greenhouse gas emitter worldwide, ranking between Japan and Germany. I'm so glad you put it in those terms because it helps us understand when you put it in the terms of how much a country emits. People really underestimate uh, the percentage of 3%. But when you compare it with with annual emissions of major emitters like uh, Japan and Germany that I've mentioned, the orders of magnitude become clear. But greenhouse gas emissions are only one part of the problem. Additionally, we have an air quality problem um, uh, in the shipping sector. And that is due to the predominant fuel use there, heavy fuel oil. Shipping has a very negative impact on air quality. It produces 15% of the world's major air pollutants. In 2015, for instance, 60,000 premature deaths alone were attributed to air pollution from ships. This means we talk there about sulfur emissions or nitrogen oxides. 
So could you talk a bit more about these fuels, these heavy fuels? What are they? These heavy fuels, we call them bunker fuels in the shipping sector. So basically any fuel that is used by a ship is a bunker fuel. And with a market share of around 80%, heavy fuel oil is by far the most widespread bunker fuel used today in the shipping sector. If you saw it in front of you, you would describe it as being almost like tar. It looks like um, a black substance, which is so thick and sticky that you need to heat it up before you can pump it into any ship's engines. Goodness. It is a highly toxic substance that has a detrimental impact on uh, human health and animal wildlife. Then there are a few other fuels. There is marine gas oil or liquefied natural gas, two other fossil fuels, which make up for the rest of the global bunker fuel market. All right. So as we're going to be talking about um, decarbonizing shipping, let me ask you, what are zero carbon bunker fuels and why are they so urgently needed? So how would you make a decarbonized bunker fuel? Very good question, Rumian. These zero carbon bunker fuels are those shipping fuels which can provide a climate-friendly alternative to the predominant fossil fuels currently used. A distinction is usually made between those zero-carbon bunker fuels, which are effectively zero. That means where the fuel is produced from zero-carbon electricity, for instance, this can be a hydrogen produced from solar or wind power. Or the second option could be net zero fuels. That is the case where the production of the fuel removes a quantity of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that is equivalent to the amount of carbon dioxide emitted during combustion. These are biofuels, for example. And these zero-carbon bunker fuels are the only way by which the shipping sector can fully decarbonize. Improving energy efficiency in the shipping sector is also critically important, but it will not be sufficient to cut emissions substantially because the demand for shipping is expected to grow further and also, therefore, the demand for these fuels. Dominique, could you explain why energy efficiency is important to limit carbon emissions when actually you're going to zero carbon bunker fuels? There will be no carbon. So could you explain that a bit? Of course, with pleasure. It is important for two main reasons. First, energy efficiency helps us to bring down shipping emissions instantly. So this means if we use wind power on ships, for instance, today, the emissions will fall tomorrow. We don't have to wait until we get these new fuels, these zero carbon bunker fuels that are currently um, under development. But the most likely, the even more important point is energy efficiency helps us to make the energy transition from the fossil fuel bunker fuels to the zero carbon bunker fuels more affordable. These zero carbon bunker fuels are likely going to cost three to five to seven times more than what we currently pay for shipping fuels. And with energy efficiency, we can reduce the amount of zero carbon bunker fuels. We can minimize the amount that is going to be needed to run the shipping sector without any greenhouse gas emissions. And does the International Maritime Organization regulate any of this or have a say? That is correct. The um, uh, International Maritime Organization, the IMO, which is a UN specialized agency that uh, has the mandate to uh, regulate international shipping, is 
the key regulator for the entire sector. And that organization in 2018 set itself a target. It seeks to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from ships by at least minus 50% by 2050 compared to the 2008 levels. And nowadays, many stakeholders at the International Maritime Organization even call for completely zero emissions by mid-century. Now, when you're considering these zero-carbon bunker fuels, are you considering life-cycle emissions from the whole process, you know, the shipbuilding, etc.? Or are you just considering the use of the bunker fuels during shipping? When we look at the zero-carbon bunker fuels, we usually um, look at the well-to-wake emissions. So from extraction to distribution to combustion in the shipping engine. We don't look at the emissions that are embodied, for example, in the steel that is needed uh, to construct uh, the vessels. That is a slight oversight. On the other hand, when you look at the entire emissions that a ship's, uh, ship produces over its life cycle, 94% of the greenhouse gas emissions come actually from the combustion of the bunker fuels. And only 6% on average are these embodied emissions were produced while the ship got constructed or um, uh, will be recycled later on. Could you now talk a bit about how you went about identifying zero-carbon bunker fuels? What, what we did, we wanted to understand what are the most promising zero-carbon bunker fuels um, to date. And how did we do this? We looked at existing studies on the topic. And we tried to assess all the advantages and all the drawbacks of three main groups of potential zero-carbon bunker fuels. We looked first at biofuels second at hydrogen and ammonia, and third at uh, synthetic carbon-based fuels. And then we assessed these three different fuel categories against a set of environmental, economic, technical, and safety criteria. What we did in uh, particular, we looked specifically at um, um, indicators such as the potential greenhouse gas impacts um, along the full life cycle, about the scalability of these fuels, how quickly could they be upscaled and made available around the world, but also uh, any unintended consequences of these fuels. For example, will they compete with um, food production, for example, or will they have other environmentally harmful effects that we didn't consider? And of course, what is very important, we talk about ships, we talk about seafarers working on these vessels. We also looked at the technical and safety considerations that are um, very relevant in the sector. And what we've ultimately found in our assessment was that green hydrogen and green ammonia, which can be produced from green hydrogen, are currently the most promising app, uh, options that we have to decarbonize shipping. And for the two fuels you focus on, ammonia and hydrogen, could you speak about some of their advantages? Why are these two chosen? When produced from renewable energy, green ammonia or green hydrogen, as I had mentioned, strike the most adva advantageous balance of favorable features relating to their life cycle greenhouse gas emissions, their broader environmental factors, their scalability, economics, but also the technical and safety implications compared to the other zero carbon bunker fuels that we considered. And here, hydrogen and ammonia are so attractive in a particular because they can first be produced at very large scale 
They are also second likely to be the most cost-effective fuels that the sector can tap into. And third, they offer enhanced flexibility in their production process. For instance, ships could either use green hydrogen or ammonia, but they could also use blue hydrogen or ammonia. Dominique, can you explain what the difference is between blue and green hydrogen? And also, I didn't quite understand why it's necessary to make ammonia from hydrogen if hydrogen can be used. Why do you need both? Let's first look at the difference between uh, green and uh, blue hydrogen or ammonia. As I said, hydrogen and um, ammonia can both be produced from um, renewable energy. We talk about wind power there. We talk about solar power, tidal power, geothermal, anything you could imagine. But these renewable energy, this renewable uh, renewable electricity production needs to be scaled up around the world. And that may take some time. So there may not be enough renewable electricity available in the beginning. In this case, we have an alternative option with hydrogen and ammonia. And that is producing blue hydrogen and blue uh, ammonia, which can be generated, manufactured um, with natural gas in conjunction with carbon capture and storage. This means that we use the natural gas to produce the hydrogen, but at the same time, we make sure that the carbon that gets released during the production process is sequestered um, out of the air and securely stored underground. And that's going to be rather expensive. That is an additional step that needs to be done. On the other hand, nowadays, natural gas is a more mature technology and is still more affordable than um, scaling up the whole renewable energy supply chain. And what about ammonia? Ammonia is so attractive to the shipping sector for a very simple reason, that is energy density. Hydrogen itself could also be used as a fuel um, in ships, but if ships care about one thing, then it is storage space. They want to transport cargo. They want to transport passengers. And hydrogen uses up much more storage space than heavy fuel oil, for instance. If we want to reduce disadvantages, these storage space um, requirements, we can uh, take advantage of ammonia, which has got a higher energy density than uh, hydrogen. I understand. Now, I'd like to understand better how much adjustment would be needed to use these fuels, hydrogen and ammonia? How much adjustment in the ships or in other areas? I would say that in general, hydrogen and ammonia can both be used in modified internal combustion engines as we uh, find them currently on uh, all ships and where they, uh, which run on heavy fuel oil nowadays. And thereby only minimal modifications to existing engines are required. And the two main ship manufacturers around the world, there is Vatsila and MAN, they have already announced that their first commercial ammonia engines and also retrofit kits for existing engines will be ready by 2024. So it is a mission possible. Aren't there other changes that will be needed to the sh- for the shipping industry? I mean, you have to get the ammonia to them. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm asking you what other changes might be needed. Of course. I mean, we have to set up supply chains for um, hydrogen and ammonia so that ships can refuel around the world. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> the good thing about um, setting up these supply chains is that some of them are already in place. Let's take ammonia, for, for instance. Ammonia is already a globally traded commodity. 
It is a key product, for instance, in the global fertilizer industry, which itself has shown a great interest in working with the shipping sector to produce, procure, and also use green ammonia on a larger scale. That's interesting. The fertilizer industry would be working together with the shipping industry. We may, we may see a very interesting alliance there. Exactly, you're right. Yeah? And what I don't want to deny is that the ammonia or hydrogen supply chains around the world need to be ramped up. This means increased production, more bunkering and related port facilities. But what I always try to uh, um, uh, convey to the people that I talk to in the shipping sector, but also outside the shipping sector is, we can cope with this transition. We can cope with these changes. Let's just remember that shipping has already undergone two major energy transitions in the past. We moved ships from wind to coal, and later on, we moved them from coal to oil. Why wouldn't we be able to transition a third time, this time, to zero carbon bunker fuels? Yes, I hadn't thought of it that way. The historical perspective is very important. Now, you mentioned biofuels and synthetic carbon-based fuels, but you, you sort of dismiss them as alternatives. Why is that? I wouldn't say that we dismiss them. We don't rule them out. We just don't prioritize them as highly as we do um, hydrogen ammonia for very simple reasons. They also have a high technical potential to be used as zero carbon bunker fuels in the future. However, biofuels are unlikely to be available in that amount um, that we will need for the shipping sector. Biofuels need to grow. You need land, right? You need, you, need, land. you need land. And when we talk about land, we talk about food production. We talk about food supply. And there will always be a, a conflict of interest between these two competing demands. Well, when we talk about land, we're also talking about solar energy, for example, if you've got solar panels on land. So that would be another issue. That is correct. On the other hand, you need for the, the amount of land that you need for biofuels is even larger than the amount of, of lands that you need for the solar panels to uh, produce the same amount um, of energy. But another reason is uh, super simple. There will be other sectors that are interested in the biofuels. The aviation industry, for example, for them, energy density matters to a very great extent. So they may be more willing or to pay more for these biofuels than the shipping sector, for instance, and thereby also drive up prices. And when we talk about the synthetic carbon-based fuels, we simply came to the conclusion that they will be less cost competitive than hydrogen and ammonia due to uh, dependence, for example, of direct air capture for CO2 inputs. That's a technology that's not fully mature yet and still very, very costly. Let's think about where the ammonia and hydrogen would would come from, because there are certain areas in the world where we get fossil fuels from. So what types of countries would most likely be able to produce these zero carbon bunker fuels? From our analysis, these countries that are best positioned to produce green hydrogen or green ammonia, the ones with abundant renewable energy potential and that are very close to major shipping routes. What we expect in the future is a much more inclusive and a much more decentralized uh, bunker fuel market in the shipping sector. In the past, you needed lots of large oil reserves if you wanted to supply bunker fuels to the shipping sector. 
And that has led to a world where we see only a few major bunkering hubs such as Singapore, Rotterdam, Fujairah, for example. However, in the future, you will not need oil anymore. You need lots of re renewable energy resources. And that makes a much more inclusive bunker fuel market globally. And this market will also be much more decentralized because of the lower energy density of ammonia and hydrogen compared to a heavy fuel oil, for instance, these ships will necessarily be required to refuel more often, call a port in many more countries than in the past. How did you assess the potential of each country? You mentioned that the distribution of resources, that is, you know, fuels for shipping, would be different because you were, were using different fuels in the future, right? under this scenario. So how did you measure the potential of each country? We basically looked at five key criteria to assess a country's potential. We looked first at the energy resources required. So we wanted to understand what does the country offer in terms of renewable energy potential or natural gas and carbon capture and storage potential uh, that could be leveraged, that could be used to produce these fuels um, in the future. Second, We also looked at the shipping volumes. So how many ships call already um, at the country's ports um, today and could be leveraged for initial demand, for example. In the third step, we looked at the geographic location because this is also important. So how close is the country to major international shipping lines or to bunkering hubs that it could supply the fuels to in the future? Fourth, we looked at the current and the projected regulatory framework, or to make it super simple, how ambitious is the country already in terms of climate action? And in the final step, we are also interested in the existing infrastructure, hydrogen and ammonia infrastructure in the country that may be there already and that would just need to be extended and scaled up. And how did you weight all these criteria? Did you weight them equally? That would be a uh, simplistic or oversimplistic. What we did is we looked at must-have and nice-to-have um, criteria. And when we make this distinction, we clearly know that the energy resources required, in particular the renewable energy potential, is a must-have criterion. Without this, you basically don't even have to get started uh, to produce zero-carbon bunker fuels. This is why we gave it um, the uh, a factor of 50% in the overall uh, score. Then for the other factors, shipping volumes got 20% because it clearly helps when you have already lots of vessels coming to your country that you could supply the, the fuels to. And geographic location and regulatory framework both got 12.5%. It is important, but it is more a nice, a nice to have. Um, I think that's something that a country can overcome if it isn't there at the moment. And the same is true for hydrogen and ammonia infrastructure that we only gave 5% because the fact that you are not producing hydrogen and ammonia yet doesn't mean that you can't produce it at large scale in the future. Yes, that's absolutely right. And what types of scenarios did you look into? Did you consider that all the countries are producing green hydrogen only or blue hydrogen? Or how did you do it? Overall, we developed three distinct scenarios um, that we applied to 218 countries that we analyzed around the world. The first one was a blue scenario, as you've just mentioned. The blue scenario means that these countries produce blue ammonia for shipping only. A second scenario was a hybrid scenario that we called the first blue, then green scenario, where the countries start with the production of blue uh, ammonia, but then very quickly 
move um, uh, to the production of green ammonia. And this may be the more reasonable scenario for many countries, actually. That could be a scenario that get uh, that gets kickstarted um, the energy transition. You're right. The third scenario then is the um, uh, green scenario, where countries produce green ammonia for shipping only. And the interesting thing is that our results showed that in the rankings, many developing countries appeared among those countries with high or promising potential to produce uh, these uh, zero carbon shipping fuels in the future. And even more promisingly, the greener the scenarios, the more developing countries appeared among those well positioned for production. Dominique, you just said that uh, developing countries are well positioned for this transition. And could you explain this a bit more? How would they benefit from the switch? These developing uh, countries would benefit from uh, producing zero carbon bunker fuels for the global shipping sector because it would allow them to take advantage of a unique investment opportunity, a unique investment opportunity that is huge. It is estimated to be more than $1 trillion. And this creates an opportunity for many of these countries to shift from currently being energy importers to becoming energy exporters and to reap several business and development benefits on top of this. For instance, we expect that by producing the zero carbon bunker fuels, these countries can also achieve their overall decarbonization and their overall infrastructure modernization more flexibly and at a lower cost. But what about the pure investment costs of developing these fuels? Who's going to bear those? It is estimated that the the costs are going to be around 1.4 to 1.9 trillion dollars to fully decarbonize the shipping sector by 2050. Out of these investments, 87% are likely going to go into land-based infrastructure. This means hydrogen production, ammonia synthesis, storage and bunker facilities, and so on. Only 13% will need to be spent on the vessels. If you want to uh, get a concrete example, these development or infrastructure costs are certainly going to vary from country to country. But in our analysis, we looked, for example, at the production of green ammonia through solar energy in India. And in order to um, enable India to supply 10 to uh, 27% of the global shipping demand for green ammonia by 2050, an estimated uh, capital expenditure of 150 to $400 billion will be needed. That's a lot. It is a lot. But we are looking at a very important sector here. Do you have another example? We, for example, also looked at uh, at Malaysia, where we applied a scenario where Malaysia first leverages its um, natural gas and um, its carbon capture and storage potential to produce blue ammonia in the beginning and then quickly shift to green ammonia later on. And if Malaysia wanted to cover, for example, 1% to 10% of the global demand um, for ammonia by 2050, the investments um, needed will be in the range of 20 to $140 billion. Dominique, you just mentioned some very large numbers. Let's speak about the risks faced by different parts of the industry. You've got the risks faced by shipbuilders, the engine manufacturers, fuel producers. So could you speak about these a bit? I don't want to deny at all that there are going to be um, uh, risks uh, to the shipping sector. For example, the fuels uncertainty is one of these risks. We've talked a lot about ammonia and hydrogen rumen. However, the final fuel mix in the shipping sector that we're going to see in 10, 15, 20 years is not fully certain yet. So what happens if, for example, 
some ships will run on biofuels or some others may run on synthetic carbon-based fuels such as methanol. There is a certain demand risk uh, for fuel producers and uh, ship owners alike if they invest in the wrong or in the non-dominant fuel that is ultimately not going to be the, um, the most important one in the, in the sector. On top of this, we've got regulatory risks as well, because so far we don't have a regulatory framework yet that clearly defines which fuels are going to be used in the future. Dominique, moving on to policy, how should countries proceed on decarbonizing shipping? What sort of regulatory steps would be needed? Countries and actions by countries will be crucial, at least in the beginning of uh, shipping's decarbonization. And policymakers can um, make a difference at two levels, both internationally and nationally. Internationally, for instance, policymakers can call for clear and ambitious policy measures and give investment certainty um, to the shipping stakeholders. For example, one idea that is currently being discussed at the International Maritime Organization is the idea of putting a carbon price on bunker fuels and thereby creating a level playing field with the upcoming zero carbon bunker fuels. In that regard, there is, for example, an idea that is being uh, explored where the carbon revenues that would come from such a carbon price could be strategically um, channeled back to uh, developing countries who will have more difficulties coping with transitional challenges. For example, these carbon revenues could then be used in developing countries to uh, develop supply chains for these green fuels or to uh, modernize and decarbonize developing countries' overall energy and transport uh, infrastructure in general. But also at a national um, level, governments can become active and take concrete measures. Several of them have already started now to proceed with first pilot and demonstrator projects and try and actively seek to support these strategically through, for example, providing guarantees, fiscal incentives, subsidies, or leveraging their green procurement power in order to de-risk the first movers that already exist in the sector. And what do you think would be the immediate next steps? I think that moving forward, that we need to see progress on two major fronts, the ones that I've already outlined, the pilot and the demonstrator projects and the support to uh, clear and effective uh, policy making. What we need is by 2030, we need, um, according to experts, we need 5% of the um, global shipping fuel mix to be uh, zero carbon bunker fuels. And in order to make this happen, at COP26 in Glasgow, the big climate conference, 22 countries already signed up to the so-called Clyde Bank Declaration, in which they committed to establish at least six green corridors by 2025. But also in terms of um, policymaking, we are actively looking at the potential of carbon pricing to disincentivize the use of fossil fuels, to facilitate the use of their zero carbon bunker, zero carbon uh, counterparts, and to strategically use these carbon revenues from such a um, market-based measure to enable a just and equitable transition in the sector where we can make sure that no country is left behind. Thank you very much, Dominique. That was very informative. It was a, a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners, what did we learn today? Firstly, there are a number of potential zero carbon fuels that can be used in shipping. But the most promising, in terms of cost and efficiency, appear to be ammonia and hydrogen at this time. 
Secondly, there is uncertainty regarding the eventual fuel mix that will prevail. In this situation, fuel producers and ship owners may be hesitant about investing in one or another of the technologies. Regulatory and financial incentives may be needed if countries wish to encourage investments in fuels, infrastructure and vessels using zero-carbon fuels. Shipping has already undergone two transitions, first from wind to coal power and then from coal to fuel oil. This one promises to be the next one. Thirdly, analyses indicate that producers of the new fuels are likely to be much more dispersed around the world. Many emerging and developing countries have the opportunity to become hydrogen and ammonia producers. Finally, were the maritime industry to impose a carbon tax on shipping, it would be important to consider the distributional impacts of the transition and use revenues to support a just transition. Thank you and bye for now.